Exactly one week ago, 26 at latest count, of our brothers and sisters who attended the First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs were brutally murdered as they were just worshiping Jesus. The disbelief, the anger, the rush to judgment. If you're like me, as I tried to cope with the unimaginable, this week has been filled with all kinds of varying emotions. This morning, we're all Baptist. As we're going to see in this section of Philippians, there is a difficult truth about life. An inescapable part of life is that we live in a fallen, broken, and evil world. And as such, persecution and suffering, they're an inescapable reality. As a matter of fact, as this little Texan church knows all too well, following Jesus, following Jesus doesn't provide you an immunity to such difficulties and in some other instances, such horrors. Paul will even close this very chapter saying something that's difficult to swallow. He says at the end of the chapter, for to you, speaking to believers, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. As we noted in last Sunday's Bible study, Paul, Paul was able to possess joy in spite of his circumstances. Keep in mind, he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, these Philippians, from a Roman cell. And yet Paul, this letter, it oozes joy. He's constantly referring to his joy and the fact that he was rejoicing. You see, Paul could have joy in spite of his circumstances for two reasons. One, Paul remained other-centered. When many of us would have sent to the Philippians a list of prayer requests we needed prayer for, Paul then opens talking about how thankful he is for them and the essence of his prayers. He's others-centered. But secondly, Paul was never robbed of meaning or purpose in his circumstances because he never allowed these things to rob him of his ability to see who he really was, his identity in Christ Jesus. Sure, Paul may have been a prisoner of Rome, but Paul served a greater calling that no situation could ever deter. He was, as he opens the letter, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And yet, in spite of all of these things, there was a point of confusion among the Philippian believers that Paul writes, seeking to clear up. This is the confusing point for these believers. Though there are times when God sometimes grants us deliverance from our trials. It was the example of Paul in the Philippian jail, a supernatural occurrence. God delivered him from his trial. The earthquake, the doors opened, the chains were loosed. And yet there are other instances when God's grace is it's designed not to free us from trial, but instead to deliver us through our trials. Then the example of this is Paul's present situation as a prisoner in Rome. Please know, because of God's grace, lasting joy has been made available independent of whatever, whatever dawning circumstance you might come to face or whatever situation you might be presently facing. Not only does the grace of God, the grace found in Jesus, free us to forgive, to liberate us from bitterness, 
But regardless of the trials or tribulations you might face, you can have joy for no other reason than this, that God so loved the world, so loved you, that he sent his only begotten son to die in your place. If, if that doesn't give you cause to worship, cause for rejoicing, nothing will. Yes, the Philippians have continued to support Paul. They sent a love offering to help with some of his legal bills. They're supporting him in the midst of his Roman imprisonment. A reality that Paul opened the letter expressing his thanks for their partnership. But that being said, Paul now will continue his letter by explaining that this perceived setback, his imprisonment, was in actuality God's way of furthering the message of the gospel. You see, Paul will say in the next section that good was manifesting from bad, a bad situation. Verse 12 of Philippians 1, we read, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. When Paul transitions by mentioning here the things which happened to me, there is no doubt that he's referring to the events that led up to his ultimate arrest and transport to Rome, where he now finds himself incarcerated, awaiting trial before a wicked, sadistic, evil man named Nero. In the original language, this phrase, the things which happened to me, would be better translated as the things which have come to dominate me. If you study the life of Paul, you'll notice that this man, he was a planner. Like, like Paul rarely did something without considering the ramifications. He was calculated and measured. Paul acted with intention, with a larger goal in mind. And yet, since his arrest in Jerusalem, Paul's life has completely spun out of his control. Like Paul's present circumstances had come to dominate his life. And there was nothing he could do about it. Have you ever felt that your life has spun out of control? That your situations, the things that have happened to you, have dominated things? Dominated your life? And yet, when many would say, when many would examine Paul and say, man, your life is out of control, Paul was able to look for God's larger purpose behind the things which have happened. He actually says most incredibly that these things have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. While on the surface, it may have been very easy to have seen his imprisonment as a setback to God's work through Paul's life. Paul is wanting the Philippians and us to know that God was actually, there's a measure of surprise, he's come to see that all of these things God has been using for a bigger purpose, to further the gospel. Paul had come to peace with his circumstances because he was willing to believe, to see that God's providential hand was at work regardless. In the Greek, this word furtherance, it's an interesting word. The word furtherance was a military term in the original language. 
a term that actually described the act of cutting down a forest in order to make a pathway for an invading army. This would have been relevant to the believers in Philippi, this church made up of mainly ex-Roman military men, being a colony of Rome. So they understood this term. It was a deliberate clearing of the way for a specific purpose. This is what the word furtherance means. And to what purpose does Paul attribute now the things that have happened to him? He writes that they've occurred for the furtherance of what? Of the gospel, not his standing, not his status, but of the gospel message. Paul is literally telling us that his present trial had actually been God's way of clearing a path by which the gospel could be proclaimed in a most radical, and for Paul, most unexpected way. That's why he says, actually, like, it's blowing my mind. Look at it. He writes, the furtherance of the gospel. Then he says, it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. This phrase, the whole palace guard, spoke of the praetorium. It was the main gathering place, the main headquarters for some of the Roman soldiers. Aside from Paul's influence impacting the commanders in charge, the very men who were tasked with guarding the Apostle Paul had not only, according to Paul, come to see his innocence, but had become followers of Jesus through Paul's witness. A four-man detail of Roman soldiers chained to Paul, rotating every six hours throughout the day, had heard this man preach. They couldn't go anywhere. No doubt Paul shared about Jesus, shared his story. You know, though a prisoner of Rome, the truth, it was actually Paul who literally held a captive audience. They couldn't get away from him. But there was a second manifestation. The, his trials, the furtherance of the gospel, it was impacting the household of, of, of Caesar. But there was a second result. He writes, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are now much more bold to speak the word with, without fear. The word translated here, having become much more confident, it would be better translated as persuaded, or that they were moved to action. Though in his chains, Paul had no doubt been removed from the larger game. Paul's absence had left a vacuum in the church at large. A vacuum that now, Paul says, is being filled by others. Because Paul was unable to travel these missionary journeys, because he was unable to plant churches, to preach the gospel, to teach the people, Paul sees that his chains had now persuaded others to be much more bold to speak the word without fear in a design sense. Paul now sees that the removal of one preacher had fostered a void that was being filled by many. He says it's a good thing. Back in Acts 16, there was no question that it had been God's will that Paul be freed from the Philippian jail. And yet the aged apostle now wants these Philippians to know that his continued incarceration in Rome was equally God's will for his life. Yes, I was in Philippi. God freed me. That was his will. Deliverance from. But in this situation, I'm telling you, my trial is God's will because he's working through it in incredible ways and he'll get me through it. God was using Paul's imprisonment. God's hand was on him. God's blessing was there. The blessings of God were still manifesting through his life, even in the less, of, less than ideal of circumstances. I have found 
and maybe you can relate, that one of the greatest hindrances to our ability to have joy in times of difficulty, in times of trial, in times of tribulation or suffering or pain, really boils down to a failure to accept God's providence. You experienced that? I know I have. Like we can wrestle with pain. We can be filled with disappointments, even doubt. But at some point to have joy, God wants us to surrender these very real emotions to a much larger reality. And what is that? That God remains in control even when our lives turn to chaos. If you can't accept that, you'll never find joy or meaning or the ability to see a purpose. You can understand, Paul was able to have joy, not only because he remained other-centered, not only because he refused to forget his true identity, but Paul's joy manifested in the fact that he was willing to see how this season, his imprisonment, was equally part of God's larger plan for his life, for the gospel was being furthered. He continues, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. As Paul elaborates on those who are filling the void left by his imprisonment, his absence, Paul admits that there were two different kinds of preachers who had come out of the woodwork. First, there were those, look back, who preached Christ from what? From goodwill or a kindly intent, out of love, And then he says, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Paul is saying that the first group had been motivated out of a love and an admiration for Paul and his ministry. That they recognized that that Paul had been arrested. As such, there was a void. And they wanted to jump into the fray to honor Paul in that. To see Paul's ministry continue. However, there were also those who look at it, preached Christ not from goodwill, but from envy or prompted by envy and strife or contention from selfish ambition, not sincerely or without a sincerity. And then he says, supposing to add to his his chains, his affliction. Sadly, there was another group who had seen Paul's incarceration as an opportunity to now increase their own status and personal position at Paul's expense. Now, what's most amazing about this section to me is that while Paul knew, he affirms it, he knew that the motivations of this second group were skewed and warped, what's his reaction? He says, what then? He says, I'm still going to rejoice. Why? Because he knew that at least Christ, though they didn't like Paul and they were doing it without a sincerity, at least Christ was being preached. Paul could find joy. He could rejoice in that. He didn't care about the insult. Whether their motivation for preaching was a love for Paul or whether it was an animosity towards Paul. If Jesus was being proclaimed, Paul could say, I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. I don't care about myself. 
Now, there is one thing that should be qualified about this. There are many who point to this passage. As evidence, churches, pastors, should refrain from criticizing other churches because they'll say, at least the gospel is being proclaimed. If you've been around this church long enough to know, um, I'm an opinionated individual. And I have opinions about other churches and other methodologies of ministry. And, and I'll be honest, I think that Calvary 316 is the absolute best church in the area. Sorry, I'm here. And you're here. That's what makes it the best church in the area. Or in the world, if you would want me to be honest. And there are times that I know I'll take some jabs. And I'll have people come up and say, Zach, at least that jerry-curled freak on television is proclaiming Jesus. Like, aren't we on the same team? And we are. And at a minimum, I can say, Christ is being preached. I will rejoice. But check this out. Though it's clear that Paul made a decision to rejoice, because at least Christ was being preached by both groups, he does this after he's what? He's called them out and documented their twisted motivations. He's like, yeah, I'm glad Christ is being preached. You know, I'm even glad Christ is being preached by that group of people that are selfish and envious and full of strife and contention, that they're not motivated by the right things, they don't like me. Yes, you know what, I'm glad Jesus is preached, but man, those guys are jerks. Like, I mean, that's, that's really what he's saying here. It's heavy. Sure, Jesus is preached, but it's okay to look at the motivation as to why Jesus is preached. The result, that's great, but Paul still pointed out a motivation, and so can we. Verse 19, for I know <clears throat> that even this will turn out for my deliverance. Through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I like how he opens here. He says, for I know, there's, there's a confidence, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. You see, Paul is sure. He's sure in his conviction, he's confident in Jesus that he would be at some point delivered. He's in incarceration, he's in chains in Rome, but Paul knew he'd be delivered. Not only had the Spirit enabled him to be sure, but it had been through their prayers that his faith had increased. And yet, Paul now defines or clarifies what he means by deliverance, because it's different than what the Philippians may have been praying for. He's like, bro, I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be set free, whether by life or by death. Though the Philippians were praying for deliverance from his trial, Paul's confidence was that the Lord would be faithful to see him through his trial, whatever result. Whether Paul stood trial, was acquitted, and set free by Nero, or whether he stood trial, was convicted, and immediately executed, Paul knew he would be delivered in either scenario. Keep in mind that for Paul, 
deliverance was not nearly as important as how he handled himself and the process of being delivered. Don't miss that. It's kind of the key to understanding Paul's mindset. I'll say it again. Deliverance was not nearly as important as how he handled himself in the process of being delivered. He writes, quote, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. It would appear Paul's greater concern was not being delivered, but acting in a way that would dishonor Jesus. He doesn't care what the results was. He just wants to make sure that in the process of it all, that his conduct, that his life, that his behavior honored the Jesus that he was a bondservant to. He writes that his sole desire was to, quote, maintain a, a, quote, boldness, which means a fearless confidence, that no matter what happened, quote, Christ would be magnified or esteemed highly. Getting out of his trial was not nearly as pressing to Paul as demonstrating Jesus, Christ, in his trial. So often we pray the wrong thing. We, we pray, Lord, get me out of this trial. When the truth is that our prayers should be, Lord, help me through. Help me endure. Help me magnify your son, Jesus. And the way I handle the things his providence has led me to face. Paul then explains to the Philippians the essence of how he could have such a, a perspective. He writes, and it's one of the most incredible lines in all of the New Testament. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In the Greek, this sentence is brilliant. Like it presents for us a formula by which anyone can evaluate their own life philosophy. You see, Paul is challenging the essence of what you live for with the reality of something we all face and will face, death. Like, like in the original sentence structure, the word gain, to live as Christ, to die is gain. The word gain spoke of having more of the very thing you were living for. Like what Paul's saying here is to live as Christ and to die is more of what? Of Christ. To live is Christ, to die is more of Christ. It's one of the most profound philosophical statements in all of Paul's epistles. Because you can use this formula to test every life pursuit. Like Paul is saying that living for Jesus made the most sense. Because in death, what would he get? More of the thing he was living for. To live is Christ, to die is more the very thing my whole life has been about. Jesus, more of Christ. To live is Christ and to die was to receive more of Christ. Like, like plug other things. To live is fill in the blank, to die is fill in the blank. Those two things have to be the same. To live is what? To die is more of that, okay? So, so plug in other things. Like, like, does the pursuit of money or wealth make sense for one's life? When death does what? It robs you of that. Like, like, can you honestly say to live is money and to die is more money? No, not at all. You don't take it. It's given to your kids as inheritance and they'll squander it. That's what they do. Like, can you really say to live is money or my job and when I die, I get more of that? What about ego or power? 
To live is, is, is gaining influence. Well, when you die, do you get more influence? No. Is it to be known? Not at all. Like, like whatever your life is pursuing, use that formula. It's what makes it brilliant. And you'll find that the only thing that la actually makes sense is Jesus. For to live is Jesus and to die, I get more of what I was living for because when I die, I stand in his presence for all of eternity. If only King Solomon had been given this sim simple formula, he would have never needed to engage in a quest to find meaning under the sun. You can read Ecclesiastes. You see, the ramifications of this statement, they're radical in almost every way. Like you could do a whole series on this one statement. Not only does this verse provide an eternal purpose to my temporal existence, but it completely reconstitutes the essence of what dying is, of what death is. Like according to Paul here, death is not the end of anything, is it? Like according to Paul, death doesn't rob you of life. It rewards you with more of what you were living for. You see, all death does is grant more of the thing your life pursued, if it's Jesus, or death strips whatever that pursuit was away forever. That's what death does. If you think about it, with such a perspective, Paul's like, bro, I'm going to get delivered, man. I'm going to be out of this trial one way or the other at some point, whether by life or by death. Because to me, to live is Christ. To die, I get more of Christ. Death is not taking anything from me. How do you kill a man like that? You don't. You can't. He continues, verse 22, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in, in Jesus Christ by my coming again to you. After making it clear that death was of no concern, Paul continues by saying, living, life, eh, it wasn't all that bad either. I, I, like, I love how he's just so kind of like nonchalant and matter of fact about it all. Like he says, if I live on, eh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Like, like, Paul's being real. He's like, if I die, if this all goes bad, it's all good. I'm with Jesus. Peace. See you on the other side. But, you know, if I do live on, I'll get to see God's continued work, maybe even come and visit you. That'll be good, too. This is how, like, this is his approach. Life, death, what? it's just the continuance of one or the other. Like, Paul's cool either way. Aside from... Paul, he says, he says, remaining in the flesh. He says that this is, this is more needful for the Philippians as opposed to departing to be with Christ, which was far better for Paul personally. It's a heavy statement, really. Like, not only does this word desire, desiring to depart, speak of a, of a craving, like a real longing. Paul's, Paul's serious. Like, he's not being trite with his words. He's like, man, I'm, I long to die. I long to be with Jesus. I long to, this word depart, means to strike the tent. I've been camping here way too long. It's like the Mosleys on week eight in Montana. I'm striking the tent and trying to get home. 
It's time to get home. Like, that's what he's saying. And before you find that kind of offensive, Paul had good cause. In 2 Corinthians 11, let me read you for something. Like, Paul, Paul wrote that in addition to being falsely accused, slander, gossip, constant opposition, this is what he writes. He writes, In beatings more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often, from the Jews five times, I received 40 stripes minus one. The minus one was them being graceful. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Not smoking weed. He was literally stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. He actually writes this before the fourth time he was shipwrecked. Four times he was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. My greatest fear is, 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 is being in a boat in the ocean and it going down and me floating around thinking about sharks. This is what he's referring to. A day and the night in the deep and journeys often. And perils, perils means dangers of water, dangers of robbers, and dangers of my own countrymen, and dangers of the Gentiles, and dangers in the city, and dangers in the wilderness, and dangers in the sea, and dangers among false brethren, and weariness, and toil, and sleeplessness often, and hunger, and thirst, and fastings often, and cold, and nakedness, besides the other things which come upon me daily. My deep concern for all the church is like finishing the race, Sounded pretty promising to Paul. If that had been your life, wouldn't you have had a deep longing? Like, man, I'm here. If this is it, I'm cool with it. But in the end, Paul concedes. He concedes. I'm hard-pressed between the two. The word hard-pressed, it, it means in a strait. Describes the, the moment a ship is forced into a narrow channel. Paul's struggle here is what he wanted versus what he knew the Philippians needed, which is why he says, nevertheless, in spite of these things, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Once again, the apostle, he has joy because he's remaining others-focused. Paul saw a greater need, a greater purpose, remaining alive for the Philippians. Verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word conduct, it's fascinating. The old King James Version translates it as conversation. Let your conversation. Eh, that word falls just as short as the translation of conduct. In the Greek, the word we have here can be translated as politic. It, it spoke of a manner of living, a manner of life, consistent with one's citizenship. Like, like in our case, in the case of a Christian, a believer, our lives are to be lived consistent with the gospel and in line with what it means to be a citizen of heaven. For this world is not our home. Let your politic, your manner of life be worthy. To be worthy of the gospel. Once again, this word worthy, it literally means to be weighed on a scale, but to be found of equal weight to. That's what the word means. 
Now, now don't misunderstand Paul's point here, because many do. Paul is not encouraging these Philippians to have their conduct equal or be of equal weight with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. How in the world can my behavior or my conduct ever, ever, ever live up to that? It can't. The death of Jesus, my my behaviors can never live up to that. It can never achieve that. Instead, what Paul is saying is he's saying their worth demonstrated by Jesus's sacrifice, their worth should then influence their conduct. It's the opposite. Saying, see how much you're worth. And by your worth, that should then determine your conduct. You know, it's not abnormal to hear people's biggest hang-up concerning Jesus. Sounds something like this. And, And at some point, probably every one of us in this room have uttered these words. We've said something like, but Zach, and I'm just not worthy. I'm not worthy of God's grace. I'm not worthy of his forgiveness. And while I understand this sentiment, the reality is that is a lie from the deepest parts of hell. The truth is that God, knowing absolutely every single thing about you, determined you were of such worth that he sacrificed his only begotten son. Your worth is equal to the very life of Jesus. That should influence your behavior, shouldn't it? That should impact the way you see yourself and you see your calling. It's insulting. It's insulting to God to question your worth when he's gone to such great lengths to determine it. He is your creator, and thus it is his job to determine your value, not yours. Always remember, grace. Grace may be free for the believer, but grace isn't cheap. The extension of God's grace required the complete and total spilling of Jesus' blood on Calvary. God's grace for you, friend, cost Jesus absolutely everything. And Paul's exhortation was for this knowledge, this incredible value that we have to influence our conduct to be a response. And notice how it was to manifest. He he says that you stand in one spirit. Paul wanted these Philippians to persevere, to persist. He's calling them to be unified in purpose and calling in one spirit. And that with one mind, they strive together for the faith of the gospel. Or literally, they labor forward in the same step. Paul wants these Philippians, motivated by their value, their worth, determined by God's grace, to be unified together in spirit, to be unified in mission. And here's why this unity was so critical. He says so that they would, quote, not be in any way terrified by their adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation from God. It would appear in the city of Philippi a persecution of the church was growing, that winds of opposition were stirring. See, Paul exhorts them to be unified and to strive together for the faith so that they would not be terrified by their opposition, but would remain strong and brave in the face of their opposition. The truth is the greatest tool God has given us to endure 
is one another. And it's so sad when someone in real trial allows things to foster disunity, to alienate them, to rob them of the very fellowship that they're in desperate need of. I had a friend recently going, in, going through trial. Some friends upset him. Not saying it's right or wrong, or I'm not taking a side, but this is what I said. I said, in this time, what you need more than anything are those brothers. And if you allow Satan to separate you, it's only to your detriment. You've got to figure out a way to be unified, to work together. You know, Paul says that we should stand fast, walk in step, knowing that it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not just to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. And then he says, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. This word, it has been granted. It is one of the most difficult phrases in, in the entire letter. To swallow. He's, he's literally saying, it's been given favor to you. You have been favored. Favored how? Not only to believe in Jesus, but you've been favored by God. Favored. His grace. How? So that you could suffer. What? Like that, It's easy to be taken back by what Paul is saying. But, but don't forget, Paul is not saying this from like an insulated ivory tower. He's saying this from a prison cell, which adds some weight to it, doesn't it? It adds some, some substance to it. He says, having the same conflict you saw in me when I was in Philippi, and now here, here is in me as he's in Rome. You see, Paul was able to find joy in his trial because he recognized that there was something uniquely special about suffering for Jesus' sake. A point that he wants these believers in Philippi to know, something he wants you and I to know, something he wants us to understand. And it's tough. Let me close with a story. During my years at Bible college, I had the privilege of meeting many wonderful men and women. But none were more memorable than John and his fiancée, Erin. High school sweethearts, they both came to Bible college, dedicating their lives to the service of Jesus. I knew John, not very well, but I knew him, because we both worked together on the landscaping crew. And his Wisconsin accent, hey, hold there, and his red mullet, made John an unforgettable figure. Following college, we lost touch, but I knew he and Aaron returned home to Wisconsin where they started a family and a life together. Fast forward many years to a beautiful spring evening, May 3rd, 2015. Around 7.30 p.m., John Stoffel and his wife Aaron, along with their three beautiful young children, Olivia, age 11, Ezra, age 7, Selah, age 5 at the time. They were enjoying a quiet stroll across the Trestle Trail Bridge in Minnesota, Wisconsin. They were just out for a walk. The sun was setting on the horizon. The night was calm. The wind abnormally strong. The air crisp. When out of the blue, a 27-year-old man by the name of Sergio del Toro who had just had a fight with his girlfriend, approached the Stoffels 
and indiscriminately open fire their direction. John, Aaron, and their 11-year-old daughter, Olivia, were immediately struck. Though in the moments that followed, Aaron suffered two additional gunshot wounds, one in her abdomen, hand, leg, she proceeded to help the two younger children to safety. From her report of the, of the incident, she says that John's final words, as Olivia lay dying in his arms, were directed to the gunman. That John looked up at him as he was bleeding out and said, may God forgive you. Sergio then proceeded to turn the gun on himself and take his own life. While Aaron after a grueling 21 days in the hospital, would survive her wounds. Tragically, both John, who's 33, and their beautiful fifth grade daughter, Olivia, died before the paramedics were ever, ever able to make it to the bridge. Though Aaron, Ezra, and Selah have struggled to move forward, they take solace this morning knowing that John and Olivia are in the presence of Jesus. Now, in light of the horrific events that unfolded this past Sunday at the First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs, and knowing that this morning I was going to have to address a statement, a statement that for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ to not only believe in him but to suffer for his sake, it sent me into a spin this week. It really did. And I couldn't get Aaron out of my mind. My thoughts turned towards her. And grappling with my own struggles about this passage, knowing that she had experienced the unimaginable, I went to her Facebook page, looking for perspective. The question, I'm going to have to preach this, can I say it with, with conviction? Can grace really sustain a person through such hardship? Let me read you a post I came across. Aaron begins by quoting Elizabeth Elliot. She writes, God will see to it that when we are in circumstances best designed by his sovereign love to give us opportunities to bear fruit for him. And then she writes, it's a hard one to swallow sometimes when you're in the thick of it. Going through the fire, feeling like you're drowning in life's circumstances. There were days upon days that I felt all I had was a heart's cry and was just, just trying to keep doing the next thing. Yet Jesus promises to carry you through. His promises are true. And then Aaron writes, Allow Him to shine through your brokenness. Even through the deep pain you may be experiencing, you will experience the most amazing closeness because hopefully it will draw you nearer to him. You are not alone. God be glorified. <laughs> Honestly, you would, be, you would be hard pressed to find a better commentary of Philippians 1 verses 12 through 30 than what she wrote. Because that's what Paul says. That's what he's saying. Friend, though I know pain, I'm not going to stand here and say that I know suffering. Nor do I know persecution. I don't know what it's like 
to be sitting in a cell in Rome awaiting an uncertain fate. Nor do I know what it's like to be Aaron Stoffel and have your spouse and firstborn little girl taken through an act of unspeakable random evil. I don't know. I don't know what the surviving members of that quaint Texas church are experiencing this morning. And honestly, I pray none of us ever will. And yet, I'm grateful. I'm encouraged. I'm inspired. That those who do know such pain, that do know such persecution and suffering, men like Paul and a beautiful saint like Aaron, that these people who do know it, who have been there, can testify to the blessings of grace that emerge when we suffer on behalf of Christ. I can't tell you, but they can. And I don't expect you to take my word for it, but you should take theirs. I spoke with Aaron this week. We exchanged a series of, of, of messages. And this was her reply to some of my questions. She wrote, It's still hard to imagine that it happened. But God has a great purpose. He's brought many to him through it. I don't get it. As your pastor, I'm just telling you, I don't get it. But I get it. And I can sit under it. And I can allow it to move me. So if you'd join me, let's pray. Father.